It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 24th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And sometimes we leave out the data. If you leave the data out in the rain in MacArthur Park, bad things will happen to it. Maybe I'll explain that later. What could be more mundane, more pedestrian than just a plain old word processor? It's one of the oldest applications available on computers. The spreadsheet was there first, but word processors came along next, and there were lots of them. And they processed words, and that was about it. Word processors have grown, changed, and they do a lot more than just process words. Microsoft Word 2007 is a huge change from the past. It has some features that are going to delight some folks, confuse others, and probably dismay some. Well, instead of starting with new features, I wanted to see what I could change. I usually do that when I get a new application. Take a look at the options for making modifications to the interface. Let's see what I can change on this application. And if it breaks, well, tough. Well, I wasn't able to break it. First place I usually look is in the settings panel to see what can be changed there. And something is really different this time around. Instead of lots and lots of menus and submenus and sub-submenus and sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-menus, there's essentially just one really long list. There are a few additional menus, but the majority of the changes that you can make are just in that one really long list. Is this better or worse? I'm not sure. Obviously, Microsoft has done some testing. They do a lot of usability testing on their applications. Someone decided that this is better than having a bunch of different menus, and it probably is, although you're still going to have to look. And the problem with a long list, especially a list as long as this one is, is that as you scroll down through it, you get about a third of the way through, and your eyes glaze over, and somewhere in the next third is the item you want. You scroll right past it. A big plus in the settings panel is the final panel that includes links to various kinds of help functions. There is an update button to check for updates. Wow, could that be any more obvious? There is an option to run Microsoft Office Diagnostics. This is new. So if there's a problem with the program, you can run a diagnostic, and it will tell you what to do. At least that's the theory. There's an option to contact Microsoft. That's a good thing. It's from here that you activate Microsoft Office, And you can also, from this panel, click one of the buttons and go to Microsoft Office Online. See online services, uh, get product updates, get help. A lot of things you can do there. Something I found that is not to my liking, autocorrect still comes with both auto-format and auto-format as you type set to convert URLs and email addresses to live links. Microsoft Listen. You have a word processor. It's not a web design tool. Granted, some people use it for that. Let those people who use it as a web design tool turn on the auto format and auto format as you type for URLs and email addresses. For those of us who use it for paper, leave that off. No matter how hard I click on a piece of paper or how many times I click on a piece of paper, that piece of paper is not going to take me to a website. That piece of paper is not going to create an email. And the big problem, having the live links in a Word document, is if you take that Word document and import it into some of the high-end publishing programs, the links are lost. They go away. The text that is included with them goes away. 
That's not good. File formats in Office 2007 are different. They use XML. XML is extensible markup language. Now, XML files are typically text files. That's not the case with all of the Microsoft Office files. They are compressed files using the zip algorithm, so although the files may be text-based XML when they're open, once you save the file, it is no longer an open source file. It's XML inside a zipped file. Also, the new file format is not readable by older versions of Word. Microsoft has faced this kind of problem before and stumbled. This time around, they got it exactly right from the beginning. If you send one of the new format files to someone who has an older version of Word, the person with the older version of Word can download a special conversion applet that installs into Word and lets them read that file. Or, if you're kind, you can send the file in the older format. You also have the option of sending a file in a special transfer format called XPS, and once you download a free applet, Word can write directly to a PDF document. Something is missing. Maybe you knew it as the paper clip, little old Clippy. Or maybe you'd replaced Clippy with a cat, that's what I used, or a dog. Uh, maybe you used the globe, or maybe you used the guy who looked like Einstein, or one of the other assistants. Well, they're all gone now. They've been replaced by a much-improved help system and by a much-improved interface that makes a lot of those things obsolete. It does this by showing you the tools you need when you need them. Take formatting, for example. When you're typing, one of the things that you'd be most likely to need is formatting for headlines, subheads, bulleted lists, numbered lists, things like that. Those are all on a ribbon that's at the top of the document. As you hover the mouse over that ribbon at the top of the screen, the text that your mouse is in changes so that it resembles the format that you're hovering over. You find the right one, you click it. No longer do you have to find one, think, well, maybe this is it, click it, no, I don't like the looks of that, go back, click another one, no, I didn't need either. This speeds the process quite a bit. You can, of course, create a new style or modify an existing file. If you do that, those tools are all going to look very familiar. Microsoft's designers didn't make changes where they weren't needed. A new feature is called Smart Art, and smart is not an overstatement here. The smart art I show on TechMiter Worldwide is a vertical list with pictures. How long would it take you to create a formatted list of three items with each of the items having a photograph beside it? Could you do it in, oh, 30 seconds? That's about how long it'll take with SmartArt. Okay, it took me a little bit longer than that. That's because I had to figure out how to use it for the first time. So maybe a minute and a half. I did have a little trouble figuring out how to work with the images themselves. But then I noticed at the top of the screen a little piece of text that said, Picture Tools. These words appear only when a picture is selected. And it's at that point that the interface is taking over. It's deciding that you may want a tool that isn't yet visible. So it shows you essentially a hint. If you want the tool, you click the words. The tool becomes instantly available. Very nice. Another new feature is an old feature. It's a very old feature. New feature is called Building Blocks. The intent is to allow Word to assemble documents from text or other content that you use a lot. Disclaimer text, pull quotes, sidebars, cover pages, stuff like that. Now, more than 20 years ago, 
This feature was available on DAC PDP-11 mini-computers running Word 11. Back in those days, it was called Document Assembly. Now, we didn't have all the graphics and all that stuff, but you assembled a document from pieces. This is very popular with attorneys, with accountants, with anybody who has to frequently use similar text. You're filling in new names and addresses, and then you have boilerplate text. Very popular. How quick and easy is it? Well, I found the list of probably several hundred pieces of boilerplate text that came with Word, decided that I would make a cover page, opened the document, and my name was already filled in. That's because I had already told Word what my name is. I hadn't given Word a company name, so it didn't pre-fill any information for the company, but it gave me a place where I could type that information. Then it gave me a place to type a document title, a subtitle, and the year. Again, a 30-second job. Now, it is going to take your company's editors and designers a little time to create all of these pieces of boilerplate, all of these building blocks. But once that stuff is created, it's going to save time for the people who use it. So some people are going to be cheering, but some people are going to be booing. And whether you cheer or grumble, may depend on how you use the program. For example, I know some editors who haven't liked a word processor since WordPerfect 5.1. Most of them are using either Word XP or Word 2003. Some say that Word XP was sort of okay, but that Microsoft ruined it with all of the interface changes for 2003. For 2007, uh, they're not probably going to be too excited about it. They're going to consider it even worse. So for specific groups of people, yeah, there are going to be some complaints. As I've said before when talking about other parts of the Office suite, it's the power users who are going to be in for the greatest shock. Those are the folks who made extensive use of add-ins and add-ons, the ones who wrote macros, the ones who designed their own toolbars, modified the program to work exactly the way they wanted it to. They're going to be back to square one. But if you're somebody who just uses the program on a daily basis to create business and personal correspondence, you're probably going to find that Word 2007 liberates some obscure features. You'll be able to do more with the program to do it faster, and you're probably going to get better results. So, yeah, I sympathize with the professionals and the power users, but there are a couple of points to keep in mind here. Number one, regular users far outnumber professional users. And second, those professional users spend a lot of time with the word processor. They figured out how WordPerfect worked. They figured out how Word XP worked. They figured out how Word 2003 worked. They will figure out how Word 2007 works and how they can change it. So, okay, Bill, and okay, Microsoft, you get five cats for this one. This version of Word looks like no previous version. But use it for a couple of weeks, and you probably aren't going to want to go back to an earlier version. True, sometimes I do have to go looking for a tool that I need, but most of the time it seems like there's an assistant standing by my shoulder and that the assistant knows exactly what I need and is ready to hand it to me. I've given Word 2007 a 5-cat rating. That doesn't mean the application is perfect, because it's not. What it means is that Word's new usability features might well convince you to overlook some of those shortcomings. That brings us to some more first impressions about Vista. I figure there are a couple of kinds of users who have Vista these days. Those are the folks who bought new computers and got Vista simply because it's what came with the computer. And folks like me who knowingly upgraded to a new operating system. Should you join that party? 
Well, it maybe depends on your tolerance for pain. When I installed Vista, I knew there would be problems. If you choose to make the transition with your eyes fully open, fine. But if you're somebody who doesn't like to solve leading-edge problems, you probably ought to wait just a little bit. Over the next several weeks, I'll share with you some of the things that I find as I go along, things that I like, things that I'm not so sure that I like. Something I do like is the close button, the X in the upper right-hand corner of a window. It's now on a red background, and when you hover the mouse over it, it glows. Hard to miss that way. Another thing I would like a lot if I had a tablet computer is the Microsoft Windows handwriting recognition tool. This is simply phenomenal. I don't write very well. I don't write neatly, and I was amazed by how well this tool was able to decode what I scribbled. Windows Vista includes a lot of security features. For example, if you try to run a new program, something that Vista hasn't seen before, it's probably going to ask you if you want to run the program. Now, that may seem a bit cumbersome at first, and some people have turned that feature off. I'm going to leave it on. I rather like the safety net feature of it being there. And it takes only a second to approve the program once I'm sure that it's something I'm running. The logic behind this is based on security. If something that you have downloaded in error is able to start an application, you're going to get a warning. An unidentified program wants to access your computer, it'll say. If you started the application, then you go ahead and improve it. If not, you cancel it. Here's one I got. An unidentified program wants to access your computer. Don't run the program unless you know where it's from or you've used it before. The program is identified as being from an unidentified publisher. The program is called Update 2.0.7024.0. The publisher, it says, is the Microsoft Corporation. It's an unidentified publisher. It's the Microsoft Corporation. The operating system is from the Microsoft Corporation, and it doesn't know this program. How strange. Well, at the time, I was running an update from the Microsoft Corporation, so I told it to go ahead. Networking with Windows XP machines on home-based LANs has always been a little bit of a rough spot, and I'm seeing a big improvement with Vista. I'm always now able to see the other machines that are on the network, whether they are Windows machines or Macs. On the other hand, I kept seeing an update almost every day for the Microsoft SQL Server 2005 Express Edition. The update had been installed twice on June 3rd, twice on June 4th, once on June 5th, once on June 6th, twice on June 8th, and on June 9th, Microsoft wanted me to install it once again. I disabled the update. Why would something like this happen? This was an upgrade installation. I had upgraded from Windows XP to Windows Vista. And by that point, I pretty much decided that I was going to reformat the drive, reinstall Vista, and then have to reinstall all of the applications. That's okay. I figured I'd probably have to do that anyway, even when I tried the upgrade. But I wanted to try the upgrade to see how it worked. Another thing that pushed me toward deciding that it was time to format the drive and reinstall the operating system is when I tried to use Bitstream's font navigator. That's the font manager that comes with Corel products. 
it told me that it was having some problems loading one of my default sets of fonts. Not a big deal. I've seen problems like that sometimes on XP. The usual fix is you remove the typefaces and reinstall them with the font navigator. I did that. I removed them. Reinstalling them was a bit of a problem. It was only later that I found out the Bitstream font navigator has a problem with Windows Vista. The problem is that Windows Vista, as the previous version of Windows did, keeps typefaces in the Windows fonts directory. That's a protected directory. It's one that Windows will not allow other applications, by default, to write to. So what had happened is my typefaces, the ones, the new typefaces that came with Vista, had been uninstalled. I wasn't able to reinstall them, and that was creating a problem with the display. Also about that time, I noticed that virtually all of the Adobe CS3 applications were failing. I try to open them, they would crash. Now there had just prior to this been an update for CS3, but I think the real problem was causing the crashing was missing typefaces. So it was time I decided to install a clean copy. I haven't yet been able to decide how many cats to give Vista. That's because it's still too early in the process. I'm liking a lot of what I see. Vista obviously is where computing is going. But the only question is whether most people are ready for it. There are a lot of big differences, and if you're the kind of person who's cautious, you probably should just wait until you buy a new computer to go to Vista. So maybe you're wondering, how did my installation go last weekend? If you listened to last week's program, you heard me say that by Sunday I expected things to be pretty much back to normal. After all, installing Vista the second time should have been pretty easy. But then again, the Titanic was supposed to sail into New York Harbor. The Hindenburg was expected to land at Lakehurst Naval Air Station. Apollo 13 should have delivered astronauts Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes to lunar orbit. And I should have been finished with the installation well before noon on Saturday. What I found Friday evening was that a new Vista installation on a clean or reformatted drive takes less than half an hour. Wow, that was a pleasant surprise, because previously when I did the upgrade, it took hours well, Saturday, I noticed that the new installation on Drive C hadn't formatted the drive. The old Windows directory was still there. And because the process took such a short period of time and I was up fairly early, I thought I might as well just go ahead and do it again and do it right. This time, I told the installer to format the drive. And I was, again, pleasantly surprised. Vista formatted the entire drive in less than a minute. Wow, goodbye files. No big problem here. I keep all of my data files on drive D, so formatting C is not a big deal. I had also carefully made a full backup of drive C on drive D. That would allow me to easily recover any configuration files after reinstalling Vista, or if I had missed some data that was actually on drive C, I'd be able to get that back because it was out there safe on drive D. When the computer started, I noticed that the Windows boot manager came up. That seemed a little odd. It gave me the option of starting Vista or Vista. And that was even odder. Two Vista installations on the same machine. Now, how could that be? And it got even odder when I opened the Windows Explorer. The two drives looked a little odd. For one thing, I had a boot device that identified itself as Drive D, Local Drive D. I also had a C drive that wasn't the boot device, but it was still labeled Boot. 
I think I probably muttered a few things under my breath that would not be something the FCC would want broadcast on radio. My life was flashing past in front of my eyes. I sat looking dumbly at the screen for probably five minutes. I knew what I'd done. I was just hoping there was some way to undo it. The boot drive was now a 500 gigabyte drive. My D drive is a 500 gigabyte drive. The other drive is a 200 gigabyte drive. My former boot drive, the C drive, is a 200 gigabyte drive. So drive C and drive D now contained Vista installations and neither drive contained my data. PEBCAC. That's an acronym. Problem exists between keyboard and chair. User error. My files were gone. My only hope was that I had a good backup. Since late last year, I've been using Carbonite. I told you about that last year. It's an online backup service, and I've tested it a few times by restoring a few files here and there just to make sure that it worked, and it always worked just fine. Well, now it was in for a real test. Tens of thousands of files are missing. So, when I formatted Drive C and installed Vista yet again, I paid very close attention to the screens. Now, I should have done that previously. When you install Vista, the installer offers you all the drives that it sees. It selects the C device by default. How did I happen to pick D? All I can figure is it must have been a random misplaced click that selected D and I didn't notice. Now, if you enjoy irony, I have to point out that I had told a friend not more than 10 days before to be very careful when installing Windows on a machine with more than one disk drive. I had cautioned him that it's easy to format the wrong drive. And I even suggested opening the case and unplugging the D drive. I could have done that. I could have taken the side off the case of the computer. I could have unplugged the D drive. That would have ensured the safety of data there. But I figured that would take too much time and it would have probably taken five or ten minutes. Besides, I knew what I was doing. Of course, I also could have paid real close attention when Vista's installer told me that it was going to format Drive D. Well, by 8 a.m. on Saturday, the Vista installation was completing for a third time. I installed AVG Antivirus and Carbonite. Carbonite immediately located my backup files on the server and started downloading them. Within a few hours, I had some of the most critical files back. By midday Sunday, I had a large number of files back. By Wednesday, I had everything back. Can I find a way to blame Bill Gates for this? Believe me, I spent some time thinking about that. I had anything else to do. Just sitting there staring at the computer as files dribbled back. The error was all mine, 100%. Why am I mentioning this? This is an event that could have been catastrophic. As it was, it was just a large pain in a certain part of my anatomy that will go unmentioned. It illustrates clearly the importance of backup. Vista has been working nicely since the reinstallation. The clean install has performed a good bit better than the in-place upgrade. That doesn't mean that an in-place upgrade won't work for you. It might, and maybe it's worth a try. But if you try that, do be prepared for it not to work properly. Do be prepared for having to go through a clean installation. And if you do that, 
do be prepared. If you plan to do something stupid, make sure you have a good backup. And if you don't plan to do something stupid, make sure you've got a good backup. In nerdly news, $1,000 worth of memory for 20 bucks. I keep an eye on Woot.com. I watch as much for the writing as for the stuff they sell. What they sell is often outdated, but depending on what you need and what you plan to use it for, it may be something you can use. I've bought some stuff from Woot. I did not buy the item that they called Compact Flash in the Pan, despite clever writing. The product they were selling were two Hitachi 4GB microdrives. These things sold when they first came out in about 2003 at $500 a piece. So if I bought them in 2003, I would have paid $1,000 for them. Now I could have gotten them for 20 bucks. Technology is like that. Remember the first $1,000 CD-ROM drives that were a bargain at $600? Now even DVD burners are 40 bucks or less. And other kinds of memory, for example. I carry a couple of 2-gigabyte USB drives with me. That's 4 gigabytes of storage in my pocket. And that got me to thinking about floppy disks. started wondering just how many floppy disks it would take and how much space those floppy disks would consume if I tried to carry around 4 gigabytes of memory that way. Okay, so my two USB devices combined are less than 3 quarters of an inch thick. They are about 3 quarters of an inch wide, and the longer of the two is a little under 3 inches, so about 1.5 cubic inches. I figured that a 5 and a quarter inch floppy disk would be about a 16th of an inch thick. I think actually they're a little thicker than that. And they came in two capacities for DOS and later for Windows machines, the 360 KB devices and the 1.2 megabyte devices. So to store 4 gigabytes of data, I would need about 3,333 floppy disks. The stack of 3,333 floppy disks, assuming each is 1 16th of an inch thick, would be 208.3 inches tall. That's 17 feet 4 inches. Uh, 5,740 cubic inches. You want to do that with 360K floppies? Okay. You'll need about 11,112 of them. That would be a stack 694 and a half inches tall. About 57 feet 10 inches. 21,000 cubic inches. Uh, That would not fit in my pocket. I don't hear a lot from OCLC, the Online Computer Library Center, even though the campus is no more than about five miles from where I live. Well, this week I received two news releases from OCLC. Thought you might like to hear about them. The Online Computer Library Center is one of Computer World's best places to work in IT. The annual ranking lists the top 100 work environments for technology professionals. OCLC is a non-profit library service and research organization. It provides computer-based cataloging, reference, resource sharing, electronic content, and preservation services to a lot of libraries. How many? Well, 57,000, they say, in 112 countries and territories. Second piece of news from OCLC noted that Web Junction, their online community for library staff to meet and share ideas, solve problems, and do some online coursework, has been awarded a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They'll use the money to replace software, enhance site functionality, and provide for long-term sustainability of services to benefit the library community. The grant, uh, more than $12 million, $12.6 million over four years. 
Web Junction community includes more than 29,000 registered members, and Web Junction has already hosted more than 300,000 unique visitors. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 24, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can also send me an email from there. Stop laughing about my little mishap this week. And I promise next week not to format the drive again. Thanks. Bye-bye.